0: This podcast is proudly brought to you by Sky Racing and Ingus, number
1: one in its field. Sky Racing boasts a team of very competent and likeable presenters, none warmer and more personable than former jockey Bernadette Cooper. Bernie is seen co-hosting Brisbane Mounting Yard Mail segments with Michael Maxworthy and she's heard on radio with Brisbane Race Previews. She's perhaps best known for her post-race interviews conducted on horseback with winning jockeys immediately after the running of the Group 1 races. Bernie Cooper is instantly recognisable with that flaming red hair, rode just under 600 winners in New South Wales, Queensland and Macau and almost caused a major boilover in a big race at Rose Hill won by the champion Sunline. The moment I saw Bernie Cooper at the big Toowoomba meeting on uh, Saturday, the 6th of April, I invited her to join me on the podcast and she very graciously accepted. Great to talk to you, Bernie. Thanks for your time. Oh,
0: The the pleasure is all mine, Johnny. Um... You are definitely a man that nobody can say no to, that, that's for sure. Because,
1: that's very kind because, of you, Bernie. <laughs> yeah,
0: just, you're, just, you're the holy grail, so it was like, of course, I would love to come on your podcast.
1: Now, because of contractual arrangements between Racing New South Wales and Channel 7, you didn't get to interview Hugh Bowman after the Queen Elizabeth Stakes, as you have so many times before. Yeah. Disappointing, but that's show business.
0: Yeah, look, it, it was really disappointing when I got the news, Johnny, and mm. um, the, the redhead in me came out. And I really wanted to sort of throw the toys out of the cot and, mm. and spit the dummy, and I probably did in, in initially because, yeah, it's, it's kind of a um, a special feeling, I think, for me uh, mm. personally, and it's, um, you know, it's the closest I can get to feeling like, I guess, a jockey, but, by absorbing all their atmosphere, whether it's behind the barriers or or after the race. And it mm. doesn't matter what race they win, I feel like I get caught up in their excitement. So, mm. yeah, I would say I was pretty devastated when that came about, but I also get that it was a business decision and it's, it's not a personal decision, and that's how the cookie crumbles. So, yeah.
1: As a former jockey, you'd understand better than most the enormity of the emotional drain endured by Hugh Bowman after the last two years or so of this mayor's career. But Byrne, hasn't he handled the pressure with dignity and with professionalism and without a glitch really, not a single glitch?
0: (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, for me, um, it it was – I feel like my relationship with Hugh as far as post-race interviews go really grew over the past few years. I mean, he's – a very modest, humble, country boy, Um, and now he's very personalised in the public. So, uh, yeah, it was always, I think we always knew he was going to handle that well, but he probably exceeded any expectations as well. So, Mm. yeah, I I, I really enjoyed watching the public really. I mean, they all knew him as a great jockey. there's, There's no misunderstanding there, but I feel as though the public know him on a more personal sort of stage now, which is beautiful.
1: Yep, it certainly is, and he was uh, so humble and uh, mm. controlled his emotions after the race on Saturday. He uh, even gave an insight into some personal issues that have been faced in his family in recent weeks. It uh, it it just put the icing on the cake, really. It was just a beautiful post race interview.
0: Yeah, it, that's right, and that's um, you know that's that's his platform to really let that out, I guess. Mm. After the big event, and because it was, you know, it was, let's face it, it was a fairy tale ending, wasn't it? And it was a, it was a fairy tale pretty much all the mm. way along. And I think they're all just so humbled and, and blessed to have been part of it, as we all are.
1: We've heard a million assessments of winks and what makes her tick from all mm. parts of the world. What is Bernie Cooper's assessment of the mayor?
0: Oh well. Yeah, what word could you use? She's interesting because she's not got this sort of big big personality. She's very um, – she's probably a lot like Chris and Huey, to be honest. Mm. I mean, clearly she's an athlete first yeah. and, a, and, a, and she's just better than everybody else. Let's face it, she's just better. Mm. Um, but personality-wise, trait-wise – um, she's stuck true to herself the whole way along. Um, you know, she she goes to the barriers pretty kindly. She gets a little bit pumped as she parades behind the barriers. You can see her sort of roach up a bit over the back and, you know, mm-hmm. she'll start to pull her head down a little bit. And, mm-hmm. and she always gives you a heart attack when she goes into the barriers. She'll go in, she'll stand for about – 10 seconds and then she'll have a thrash and you think, oh, God, what's she going to do? And as you know, she's done that and missed the kick. And then you wouldn't believe it, um, the last race I did with her, which would be three races ago now, Mm. she was having a hissy fit in the barriers and they pressed the button and they didn't open. (laughs) Can you believe it? Mm. They they they, They went back and did a manual start. So she would have missed the kick incredibly badly on that occasion because, yeah, she was – and, you know, sometimes they're a little bit worse than others but she always has that little bit of a throw or a thrash really mm. in the barriers, which is pretty nerve-wracking.
1: You retired from race riding in 2005 after a topsy-turvy stint in Macau, which we'll talk about later. Mm-hmm. When you returned to Australia, you decided to get a job and you mm. started at the Star Casino in Sydney <laughs> And you later moved to the Treasury Casino in Brisbane. What were your duties at the Star and and the Treasury Casinos?
0: Oh, okay. Well, firstly, I had no qualifications to get a job because when you're 32 or 33, Mm. (laughs) you you want to put together a resume, right? (laughs) And Mm. all you've got is that you ride horses. It was really, really difficult. And I had a friend whose girlfriend worked at the casino. So that was my kind of, the only reason I got a job at the casino, really, I guess, was because of her. Um, so she got me a job at the front desk. <laughs> 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 My job was to sign people up for their membership and deal with all their membership problems and, you know, points and all that stuff. So, mm. yeah, that was very Humbling, obviously, and very difficult because I've worked outside my entire life. So to work inside that casino style of venue where it's like noisy and it's continually sort of falsely lit, and I really actually struggled with that. So with, yeah,
1: with the environment.
0: Yeah, I did, I did. But mm. um, when I went to when I went to Treasury Casino, I actually moved into the tab. And and that was much more my style Mm. uh, of people to deal with and environment. Yeah, so that was better.
1: Now, this was around the time Sky Channel introduced two new outlets, Sky Mm. 2 and Sky World, and they needed more Brisbane contributors and you were asked in true Hollywood style to, (laughs) to do a screen test. How did that play out?
0: It was, um, it, well, it was I think it was one of those cases where stars align for you because, um, yeah, Lagos actually rang me mm. and I remember I was coming back from the paper shop and walking the dog and I was just so excited uh, to hear. I had actually applied, when I was at Star, I had applied for a job, a data entry job mm. with Sky Channel in the Ultimo office. I thought surely I could put stuff into a computer. Mm. um. And they'd run me back and said, oh, you know, great to hear from you. We'll be in touch. But it was then a long break, really, um, till I heard from Rod. But anyway, he said um, that um, Brendan Parnell had asked him to call me and, yeah, what could I do this screen test? So the screen test was going to be with, and it was, with Andrew Bensley. So they said, just do a bit of form for the Magic Millions two- and three-year-old race. Mm-hmm. And then come down and see Bensley, I think, on the Friday and do a screen test. I've been a long time out of looking at racing, Mm. to be honest. Uh, What year? That was um, five years I hadn't really looked at a race. Mm. Anyway, so I sat down, I did the form, and I used to ride for Gillian Heinrich a bit, so I was pretty much leaning towards military rows anyway. And then Mm. (laughs) I think David Pfeiffer's filly in the three-year-old, I can't think of his name, Annie something, Annie or?
1: Graceful Anna. Anna.
0: Graceful Anna. Mm. Yeah. And I, I love the name Grace. I, I called Stella, Stella Grace. So yeah. <laughs> I just went for those two and it was just just I mean it wouldn't have made any difference if they won, lost or whatever. But it was just it was like as if as if everything was aligning. The screen test went really well and and yeah, they they actually they I don't think they actually got in contact with me for quite some time and actually started to fret and think, Oh, it must have gone poorly, but mm. Yeah, then they just rang up one day and said, yeah, we're going to launch these two new channels in May, so um, just just rock up to the races with your form. Mm. Well, Burn yeah.
1: nowadays you do as much form study as any of the presenters in the hope of steering people onto a winner, but yeah. I'm sure your favourite job with Sky is to mount up at those major meetings and conduct the – Terrific post-race interviews which have made you extremely prominent in racing media around Australia. I've wondered, uh, they say riding a horse is like using a knife and fork, you never really forget how to do it, mm. but did you go out and have a few practice runs before you started at those post-race interviews again on horseback?
0: No, I didn't. Mm. God, you'd
1: <laughs> didn't. be sore the first day.
0: Yeah, I used to be, yeah. Um yeah i i did i didn't and it but it is it's just muscle memory and it's you know when literally you've done something your whole life um you can you can still have that break you might be a bit sore the next day but mm. you certainly don't forget anything or and most of the horses are quite good i mean I've had a few <laughs> few instances where there's been close calls but mm. yeah overall they're pretty good so no i just i actually like that sort of um, random sort of freeness of just flying mm. on a horse, you know, one day here or one day there, and
1: mm.
0: not really sort of training for it. Yeah, I like it. Mm.
1: Now, excluding Winx and Hugh Bowman, mm. you've shared in so many emotional post-race scenes that it must be hard to pick a favourite. Let's leave Winks out of this equation. Yeah. Do, do you have a favourite? Do you have a special one? Which jockey um, was the most emotional? Which jockey was the most giving?
0: Well, I, I've been incredibly fortunate because I did a few black caviars as well. Not not many, but I I did a few there. And I did. You know what? For me, mm. the most emotional jockey to interview is is Tommy Berry. Really? Yeah. And I think a lot of it probably you know there's a, there's a part of me that's always really Really sad for Tommy because his other half isn't with him, and I know when he rides, he just rides with that that mm. passion for Nathan as well. So yeah. I did a lot of interviews with Tommy, sort of not long after he lost Nathan, and, and that was, you know, really really emotional and mm. be- but beautiful at the same time. You know, to admire yeah. his stre- his strength and his um, determination just to, to to take life, you know, yeah, by the grip of the neck, so to speak, and just and keep running with it, but also, mm. yeah, that that huge emotion. So I really get a, um involved with Tommy in a post race interview, and mm. I, I love how he's not afraid to really sort of let that emotion. I mean, obviously, all different personalities make up make up these girls and guys, mm. but yeah, I think there's always definitely a great connection with Tommy Berry.
1: You've only got to read Tommy Berry's racing tweets to yeah. re- to realise he wears his heart on his sleeve.
0: He does, doesn't he? Mm. He does, but he also loves to get involved in that 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 really driven passion and excitement and yell out and and you know it gives you a piece of every emotion that he's feeling, which is which is outstanding from my perspective. But I also admire you know the the more sort of humble and contained. I mean. Kieran McAvoy. I don't know what it would take for Kieran. He gets a little bit excited, but he's Mm. always just so delivered and Mm. and you know intact. But (laughs) Mm. and then you've got you know sort of country Huey, who yeah, really calculates what he's going to say perhaps before Mm. before he does. But and Ty Anglin. I mean, I did some great interviews with Ty Anglin as well, which was. He was really emotional the day he went on David Payne's horse and I think he missed his brother's wedding.
1: Yeah, ace high. Ace high,
0: yeah, yeah. That was a beautiful interview, yeah, and Mm. a great horseman. So you can really admire them for all their different attributes, that's for sure.
1: You've got to put yourself in a position past the winning post ready to pick up the winning rider. Mm. So, Bern, obviously you don't get to see the race uh, as no. thoroughly as you'd like to. Do you hear the public address? Do you uh, do you have any sort of access to a broadcast?
0: Yeah, yeah. I've got an IFB in my ear, which most mm. of the time gives me a nice call um, and I can obviously watch them across the track from, mm. you know, even though they're very distant, you can still make out, with, combined with the call usually, mm. Um where everybody is, Some, I'm not. I'm a bit oblivious to sort of, you know, a lot of interference, and, and I might hear a little bit of it in the call, but mm. not to what they. But I'm more led by their emotion, and yeah, and if I'm in doubt, I might ask them quickly pre-race, yep. uh, a pre-interview rather, sorry. Mm. Um, if if there's something in doubt, but generally, I generally I just like to jump on their bandwagon with whatever emotion they've got, and just. Mm run with it. Yeah, James, James McDonald is another fantastic one. In fact, he used to get sort of really sort of, you know, excited. I actually think he might have got told um, to just uh, tie it down a little bit maybe. Yeah. This was in the early days before he had that layoff mm. um, with Godolphin, yeah. But he, you know, as a young jockey, you know, obviously outstanding and, mm. and yeah, emotional as well. Mm.
1: You know, For those who think riding a racehorse doesn't require much physical effort, should watch some of your post-race interviews because some of those jockeys, Bernie, blow harder than the horses they're riding. (laughs) So you'd know better than most, unfit jockeys aren't in the race, are they?
0: No, no, they're incredibly fit and, you know, to to ride – horse out in that position you know every single muscle in their body's burning from their toes because most of them are sitting on their toes you Mm. know to their calf muscles their their thighs holding them up and then that back arched over and then the head like the head's heavy and they've got to hold the head back Mm. and that's not even starting with the, the vigorous riding that they're doing so It's incredibly physical, yeah, and, and, you know, on occasion if they're wasting really hard, we might need to wait a little bit till they can just sort of, you know, close their mouth a bit and and wet it. I have had times where I've had water there with me actually and they've just rinsed and spat out. If it's, you know, hot, Mm. yeah, I've done that a few times, which has been funny. Mm.
1: (laughs) Well, let's go right back, Bernadette. You were born in Brisbane. You went to the sunny coast. Then mm-hmm. you went up to Cairns for a while, and then back mm-hmm. to the sunny coast. Mm-hmm. And you were seven or eight when you got your first pony, whose name was Kitten, mm-hmm. and he taught you the basics.
0: Yes, absolutely. Was it well, a he it or a she, Kitten? It was a little mare, yeah, little mare, little yeah. Mare. And um, yeah, my my dad, I don't, my dad went off to a, a sale and and just brought her home, which was incredibly exciting because I was just know horse mad at the time mm. um and I think it inspired him to get uh back into horses and he always had a big love of racing and and the people in racing so yeah he uh he taught me to ride on kitten and you know it was old school you ride bareback till you can ride your pony properly and she used to dump me all the time. She was a bit of a. She wasn't actually. She was actually a hot nether. But I mean, I loved her to death. But mm. I look back on her, and she was a. She was a horror. She's a. She's bolt and pig roosh and spin mm. around and. But she really taught me to ride, and you mm. know, if you didn't have a passion, she was quickly going to turn you off. I think so. Mm. Yeah, it was great, and um, I probably only had her about six or eight months, and. Dad went off to the sales and came home with a racehorse called Hogan's Hope and I think he paid $300 for him mm. and he was just going to sort of be a hobby trainer. He hadn't trained before. He'd ridden in Victoria in like the point to points. Well, he actually, he had had a jumper I think in Victoria mm. um, but basically he was going to kick off with his own horse, and we thought it was ironic because he used to make us watch Hogan's Heroes all the time. So we (laughs) thought it was pretty hilarious that he had a horse called Hogan's Hope. Mm. Massive
1: coincidence.
0: Massive coincidence, yeah, but I just remember my watching him run up and down the fence. I think he was a three-year-old at the time in a colt, so he, like, had, you know, all that testosterone sort of spilling out of him and he, he looked shiny and magnificent he was quite a big horse so mm. you know I said well what are you going to do with him and he said I'm going to race him and that mm. was my first racing conversation with dad and he explained how yeah you race them and a jockey rides them it's just like a like a defining moment. I thought, Hallelujah. <laughs> mm. This is my this is gonna be my chosen path. I'm gonna ride horses forever. And that was it. <laughs>
1: Sold. <laughs> well, your mum Elizabeth and your dad, Tony, were mm-hmm. both Victorians. And they both yeah. could ride, Bernie. In fact, you just mentioned that your dad rode over the jumps.
0: Yes. Yeah, point to point races. Mm. Um so his uh, his family went racing but his older brother went off to join the stables, John, um, when he was young and I think Dad watched that and that was probably what dragged him into racing or sort of created his, his love of racing. But he was a good rider, my dad. And my mum my mum grew up um, in Pakenham and she, my grandma was a life member of the Melbourne Hunt Club so they hunted all the time and my mum was more of a, Event rider uh, and her sister, and they used to have one-day events. I think even on the on the dairy farm in Pakenham. So yeah, they were pretty heavily involved in the Pony Club and all that kind of yep. stuff in Victoria. Yeah,
1: your dad Tony was a Vietnam vet who mm-hmm. died much too soon at just forty-six years of age. Yeah. So he got to see you ride in the early part of your apprenticeship.
0: He did. He did. He he saw me almost to the almost yes uh, within months of the end of my apprenticeship. Actually, so yeah, he had a he had a lot of fun, and I think he was there when I rode my first winner, um, you know. And he was he he was my anchor because my mum didn't want me to be a jockey, and mm. um, he he was okay with it. So. Yeah. Um, and he organised an apprenticeship for me, and yeah, he he loved it. It was great.
1: You were indentured to a trainer called Colin Williamson on mm-hmm. the Sunshine Coast, and you had your first race ride on a short-priced favourite. I think it might have been odds-on at Gimpy on the sand yeah. track, and it was, burn as they say, an inauspicious debut.
0: <laughs> totally wasn't it? Yeah, I went to Gimpy. I, I I think back now, and I just, I feel as though I had no idea. But anyway, I went to Gympie uh, to ride Memblu and mm. I think she started odds on favourite. She had pretty good sort of Sunshine Coast form and mm. it was just one of those classic Gimpy moments where she took one stride out of the barriers and didn't like the sand and got beat 100 yards. So mm. it was like, mm, come back to earth. So, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's racing as they say. And it's probably not a bad thing anyway because, you know, The next – I don't think I had a ride the next week and a couple of weeks later I I rode my first winner. So Mm. it's just sort of good to keep your level, I guess, yeah.
1: And that first winner was a horse called Lynchburg and it was at a little place called Nanango, uh, just a few miles from Kingaroy. Bernie, Mm -hmm. the date for your records was the 8th of September 1990, Lynchburg at Nanango. I think you rode a double that day.
0: Yeah, I did. I did ride a double and – yeah, it was quite, quite good because I actually, I think I started my apprenticeship in January. So, yeah, and I was writing by August. So, it all kind of happened fairly quickly, which can happen if you already have sort of writing experience. But Lynchburg was, you know, trained by just a little hobby trainer, Terry McCarthy. And, um, you know, I wrote him every day. And, you know, some people get really involved in, in young apprentices sort of starting their careers and, mm. you know, they're really supportive and, and he was incredibly s- supportive and, yeah, got right involved with, you know, the thrill of my first win and it, it's just, you, you can't imagine, it's like being in heaven when, when that's all you're dreaming of doing and, you know, mm. you're getting up at three o'clock every morning and it sounds like slavery but it's actually heaven. So.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but that first winner erases All of the unpleasant memories.
0: Oh, it does. It does. And that's what you're there to do. And it's just the beginning as well. So, yeah, it's, you know, it's it's incredible. It's, It's hard to put words to.
1: I'll get you to stand by for a moment. We're going to pause for a break on the podcast. Back in a moment with Bernie Cooper. The 2019 English Australian Easter Yearling Sale was the second best ever conducted, Well over $122 million was traded over two days with 19 lots realising a million or more. 75 lots sold for $500,000 or more up from 72 last year. Seven stallions recorded the highest ever individual sale price, including Schnitzel 2.8 million, Exceed and Excel 1.7 million, Lonro 1.4 million, Brazen Bow 1.1. The day one trade of almost 64 million was a Southern Hemisphere record for an individual day's yearling sale turnover. It was a huge two days at beautiful Riverside in front of an energetic buying bench from all corners of the globe. You'd have to say that the trainer to launch your professional career was Paul Sutherland, who died in 2016. He'd been in Sydney where he'd had great success, finishing second in one trainer's premiership to Brian Mayfield Smith with Tommy Smith in third place that season. Paul decided to get out of the rat race and relocate to the Sunshine Coast. How did you forge an association with VP Sutherland?
0: Well, yes, he Paul uh, had been at the Sunshine Coast, I think, for about a year before I started writing for him. But you know, I'd had this sort of lovely apprenticeship and and enjoyed some good success, and then the wheels fell off. So. Mm. Um, you know, in, in classic sort of young jockey style, you really need to find a stable or a connection or something to to take you into that young life as a, life as a young jockey, mm. and that's by far the hardest period for anybody. So I started writing for Paul, and um, Paul was great because he brought a point of difference probably to the Sunshine Coast, um, as you mentioned, the success he'd already had in Sydney, and he was sort of looking to retire in a horse training kind of way, but, you know, yeah. have a smaller team, less pressure probably. But actually, actually ended up building up into quite a reasonable-sized team of probably 40-odd horses. But it, mm. for a long time he only had 20. So, yeah, I started riding for Paul and I was probably third or fourth down the rank for some time and, yeah, just developed a great friendship with Paul and Libby and worked my way up the ranking. I think at one stage there he had um, – Bruce Compton had come back over to to ride for him as well, so I was riding a lot of track work with Bruce, which was really, um, you know, informative, and I learned I learned a lot actually from Bruce. Great horseman, yeah,
1: Bruce Compton, wasn't he?
0: A master, mm-hmm. a real master, yeah, and just a lovely guy to boot. So and a great teacher. So yeah, I had I had a couple of great teachers. I had Craig Aronimous was another great teacher of mine in the early early stages of my career mm. um, and then Bruce and obviously um, you know Paul Paul was hugely supportive and had good trust yeah. um, in, in me and and that showed I think because we we then had a lot of success so it was great.
1: Interesting you raised that point it, it must make an immense difference to a jockey when he or she goes out onto the track and trots around to the barrier, knowing that the trainer back in the grandstand has total mm. faith in you?
0: Oh, massive, Johnny. In fact, if it if it's not happening like that, it's not going to happen out there for you 90% of the time. So mm. there's one million things, as you know, to, to think about when you go out there. And you can make it plain or you can make it complicated, but there's still a lot of things to think about. And if one of those things is you're doubting that they're doubting you, that <laughs> mm. then doubt is the biggest destroyer of all time. So, yeah, if that can be put out of your mind, then you know you're going to ride a good race ninety percent of the time. So, yeah, it's relaxing, isn't it? If, if you're not if you're not relaxed about that relationship, then mm. things aren't going to happen.
1: Paul trained a little filly at the time called Dynamic Reason. And she was very special to young Bernadette Cooper. She got very sick at one stage, this filly, and her racing career was in jeopardy. And you actually took her home to your place and you and mum and the family nursed her back to health.
0: Yeah, we did. Um, so each year when the babies would come through, we'd all sort of pick our, pick our baby. So I picked her Um and I was extremely close to her. And then she got, she was obviously getting ready for the Pelican Waters Classic. Um, and I'm not sure what caused it, but she got sick, uh, whether or not she just got a virus. And next moment, we were still probably only, I don't know, five weeks out from the Pelican Waters. And she's having her lungs drained at the stables. Um, yeah, it was pretty confronting. And so Paul said, let's, send her home. Paul and Libby actually lived next door to me so mm. they could see her. So she she came home with me and yeah, I used to spoil it. She used to live on biscuits. Can you believe it? That was funny. Mm. Um, I don't know why I used to be biscuits. She used to live on them. Um, yeah, so she came home and we looked after her for not long, maybe two and a half weeks, three weeks, mm. because she had to get back into work. Yeah. So she went back into work and was a phenomenal training effort really on on Paul's behalf because, you know, it wasn't like she had an easy race. I think she drew Barry seventeen and she was up on up on the speed and she looked like a greyhound. She was so light because, Mm. you know, of the sickness that she'd had. And but that was just I don't know, A her determination to win, but I actually think she part of her, you know, because she and I were so close, it felt like she wanted to please me too. It was yeah, it was nice. It was great. She only fell in, but that's all she needed to win by, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, it wouldn't have surprised you had that great win in the Pelican Waters Classic bottomed that filly, but it didn't. She came back and, and won some more races later. Yeah,
0: she did. She did. She didn't, I think, race for a long time after that. She might have raced for a year or, or maybe, a bit, maybe a little bit more and mm. Jan McMillan, who part-owned her, actually took her over and tried for many, many years to get her in foal, but she was never able to. And I often thought it was perhaps because she had such a stressful two-year-old year and so sick as well. Yeah, but she, so she never had any foals, sadly. But anyway, that's, she lived a happy life.
1: <laughs> well, Bern, that brings to an end part one of our very, very uh, enlightening chat on the podcast. We'll be back with part two shortly. And in that uh, that segment, we'll be talking about that nasty fall you had one day at Eagle Farm. Uh, Your move to Sydney with Paul Sutherland, who decided to return to the Big Smoke. And you stayed for four years, and uh, you and Paul uh, had a wonderfully successful association here on the Sydney tracks. And then an up-and-down trip to Macau, which is where your riding career came to an end. That'll be part two with Bernadette Cooper. The focus of Thoroughbred breeders will now centre on the English Chairman's Sale and the Australian Broodmare and Weanling Sale to be held at Riverside from May the second. A magnificent collection of top-class mares will be offered. Group 1 winner Eloisia, dual Group 1 winner Srikandi in foal to American Pharaoh, Santa Ana Lanes Dam, Fast Fleet in foal to Zoostar, Inca Lagoon, Dam of Hong Kong champion, I-Victory, in Folder Sebring. Group two winning mare, Snitty Kitty. Norzita, champion three-year-old filly of her generation, in Folder Schnitzel. Pasadena Girl, Beal's only group one winning two-year-old filly, in Folder Sebring. Fiesta's Dam, now now, in Folder Piero. Noondi, the Dam of Booker, in Folder Written Tycoon. Dash off the dam of Sprite in who to I am invincible. Apology not accepted, the only mare in Fold to Doro to be offered this year. So Serene, a winning exceed and excel mare in Fold to Sebring. Netoya, a daughter of Sebring, being offered as a racing and breeding prospect. 53 lots and a few wild cards will be offered at the boutique sale, commencing at 6.30 Friday, May 3rd at Riverside Stables.